As if we hadn't had enough bad news about the condition of the Great Salt Lake, a recent report said that without a dramatic increase in water flow to the lake this year and next, it could disappear as we know it in five years. The report laid out all the terrifying details, how it's lost about 40 billion gallons of water in the last few years, how it's now less than 40 percent of its size. There's a list of recommendations in the report, but it's also notable that researchers included a section on what not to do. Don't count on cloud seeding is one. Don't build more reservoirs and pipelines is another. The report is very specific with its numbers, and the theme is urgency. Another in the not-to-do list, don't wait for rain. Today in Radio West, what Utah leaders are doing or not doing to alter the grim future of the Great Salt Lake. After this. Great Salt Lake has reached a record low. With drought, climate change, and population growth, how can Utah better support its critical body of water? KUER is a member of the Great Salt Lake Collaborative. It's a group of news and nonprofit organizations engaging and informing the public about the crisis facing Great Salt Lake. We're also focused on solutions journalism. That means we're not just talking about the problem, we're also asking what can be done before it's too late. Learn more at greatsaltlakenews.org. Ben Abbott is a professor of ecology at Brigham Young University. He's the lead author of a grim report issued a few months ago about the future of the Great Salt Lake. The report said without dramatic action, the lake could disappear. That's the word they chose, disappear. And what's striking about the report isn't just that conclusion. It's the specificity. Exactly how much water the lake is losing, how much it will take to refill it, how long that will take – And speaking of being specific, these researchers say we've got five years to figure this out. Ben Abbott said something to us this week that suggested we know what to do because in a way, we figured this out before. He told us when Mormon settlers first arrived in the valley in 1847, they too were working against the clock. Literally, the very first thing they did was divert a stream to start growing potatoes. They were either going to grow food in this new place or they were going to starve. There was a laser focus on providing food in a subsistence manner. It's really interesting to me that when those early settlers were simply meeting their needs. They actually stayed within the ecological limits of what the Great Salt Lake watershed could support. For the first century, things really worked quite well. The lake level stayed stable. Most of the habitat around the lake remained intact. And there ended up being enough food for a rapidly growing population. Everything changed in the early and mid-1900s. The Bureau of Reclamation and the Army Corps of Engineers and our nation as a whole began this project of trying to terraform the Western U.S. At that time, semi-arid and arid ecosystems were really considered as wastelands, good for nothing. There was an idea of we need to transform these shrublands, these desert ecosystems into verdant, lush, Eastern United States, Western Europe-type ecosystems. These enormous water projects started springing up in the 1930s across the Western U.S. Dams, reservoirs, canals, pipelines. Not because there was a pressing need for them, but because there was anticipation. Hey, if we create a surplus of water, if we're able to take not only the portion that we need for local subsistence... But if we're able to take all of the available water, 
We're not going to let any of it go to waste. People will follow. These projects were, on one level, immensely successful. They are really engineering marvels, though they came with a real dark side. The dams in the Great Salt Lake watershed now create the ability for us to overconsume. I have this deep belief that comes both from my experience as an ecologist and from my personal religious beliefs that we have a connection with the earth. If we use the gifts of the earth to take care of our needs, then there will be enough. If we start consuming and exploiting the earth, the consequences are dire. Some of them are immediate. Some of them take decades to fully be realized. That is what we're facing. We are living beyond our means. If we are serious about living here long-term, then we have to bring our consumption in line with what the natural world is offering. This is Radio West. I'm Doug Fabrizio. Today in the program, Ben Abbott is joining us to take us through the latest news about the Great Salt Lake. We wanted him to break down the specifics in the report, but also respond to what lawmakers and leaders are doing or not doing to change the future of the lake. We began with that word in those first paragraphs of the report, that if things don't change, the lake will disappear. And we wanted to know what exactly did they mean by that? We picked that timeline because at the current rate of water loss from Great Salt Lake, that's literally where it would hit zero. Now, we try to be clear, this isn't a prediction. We're not doomed to follow that path, but we were making the observation, you know, if we continue as we have begun, losing um, so much water from the lake each year, then that's where we, we reach zero. Now, I think it's really important to point out major negative consequences happen long before the lake is, quote, gone. Yeah. Now, the, the term disappear, I quite like it because uh, that's what happens with evaporation. <laughs> you know, you have liquid water that you can see, and then it disappears. Now, it, it is not destroyed. That water goes somewhere. We know with lake effect, it, it does a lot of important things after it disappears. But the lake as we know it absolutely would cease to exist if we continue losing water uh, at this rate. Mm. So the, I guess the key finding or one of the key findings was that without a dramatic increase in water flow to the lake in 2023 and 2024, the, the, then these sorts of things can happen. Are those the crucial years yeah. this year and, and, and next year? Is that, are those the sort of key dates that you're looking at? Yeah. The, the, the lake is not only close to the edge. Mm. It is – going over the edge right now, yeah. right? It, it's collapsing. Um, and, and we used that term in the title, yeah. right? It's ongoing collapse that we're seeing. And the the stromatolites that um, provide the base of a lot of the food web for the lake, many of them are exposed. They're desiccated. They're dying. Um, the salinity in the lake is, is around 18%. Mm. That's right where the brine flies and the brine shrimp can no longer uh, properly carry out their life cycles. They're, we're starting to see the symptoms of that in population decline and changes in the timing of when they um, go through the different life cycles. So, and at the same time, two thirds of the lake bed is exposed right now. Um, and as that stays dry year after year, it becomes a more and more important source of toxic dust. So this um, d death is an, in is an incomplete metaphor for what happens with an ecosystem yeah. because it isn't completely biological, right? It's the biological and the physical aspects of the system. Um, but, but that really looks like what we are experiencing right now is the death or the loss of all of the functions of this this keystone ecosystem that all of our activities that are continued thriving depends on one of the points you make in the in the report is that despite encouraging 
growth in legislative action and public awareness? Because there has been some. Whether there's been enough, we'll talk about. But you also mm-hmm. write that despite all of that, most Utahns do not realize the urgency of this crisis. This is something you had yeah. mentioned to us a few weeks ago that you don't think people in the community, enough people have sort of taken that the full blow of the potential existential threat going on yeah. here. Say something about that. So, you know, we have as a species this incredible optimism bias. Yeah. And I mean, it's been shown in, in psychology and all kinds of creative experiments. Sometimes it's brilliant. Sometimes it allows us to do impossible things, right? It looks like we're never going to be able to cross the the land bridge between Asia and North America. And yet, because there were these uh, indigenous peoples that believed it was possible, they they did that, right? And colonized North America during an ice age. Um, likewise, uh, having the kind of society that we have here in, in the Western U.S., in a semi-arid region, that, that seemed impossible to many people. So sometimes that optimism bias is really helpful, but it also can, can uh, make us blind and and not see risks that are that are really bearing down on us and i find myself falling into this thinking of you know what we've been here for a long time and there's no way that things could really change you know and if they do change it's going to be slow and we'll be able to adapt at that point but the loss of a salt lake of an endorheic lake, so a, a terminal lake, it sets off a chain of events that are, as far as we know, impossible to reverse. And I say that because there have been no meaningful successes globally, yeah. right? The, the the decline of Great Salt Lake that we're seeing is a part of a global trend. 54% of global terminal lake area has been lost because of irrigated agriculture. And <laughs> there, there are warnings, but it is so difficult when it's a slow motion train wreck to get people on board. There's always something that seems more pressing, more urgent. Okay. I w- l- let me ask you some numbers. The, the report says that the lake needs an additional million acre feet per year to reverse its decline. And then there's also a mention of um, you know, increasing average stream flow – um, that begins that sort of gradual refilling. Um, I don't want people's eyes to glaze over. These are really important, these numbers. So yeah. just take us through these numbers and put them in perspective for us. How do we fill up the lake? And, and mention the numbers. Well, thank you for your attention to numbers. Because when when you're in a crisis, right, when your bank account is almost empty, you've got to be really detailed-oriented and make sure that your expenditures don't exceed how much money is coming in. And and so we call it a water budget for a reason. (laughs) Because just like with your your bank account, you can't call up your banker and say, hey, I I know that my account is empty, but I'd love it if it wasn't. You know, and I've I've done a lot of radio shows on how it should be full, or I've passed a lot of bills, right? That's not how it works. It's just how much is coming in, how much is going out. And so we looked at the recent period from 2020 till 2022, and only about 1 million acre feet of water was making it to the lake Mm. each year. That means that about two thirds of the natural water flow that would be going to the lake was being diverted and used for irrigated agriculture and for lawns, the two main consumptive uses. We did a historical analysis and looked in the lake's modern history, when was the lake level increasing? When was it decreasing? And there's a clear threshold when the lake receives around 2.5 million acre feet a year, it increases, the level goes up. Um, When it receives less than that, it, it goes down. And so we need to increase the amount of water flow to the lake by about a million acre feet per year. And to put that in context, it represents a 30 to 50% decrease in the amount of water use that we have in the watershed. Those are big numbers, right? We're not, we're not talking about, let's just skim off six to 10%. It's a third to a half to bring our, our, our water use to a sustainable level where the lake can survive and continue supporting our society. 
we have to decrease the amount of consumptive water use by a third to half. And that means what? That means because you mentioned irrigated agriculture and lawns. Yeah, I'm, I'm guessing it's more irrigated agriculture than lawns, but certainly lawns are there. So how does that yeah. translate? So the easiest way to break it down, because there, there are a few other categories, yeah. but you really can split it into three. About 80% of the consumptive water use comes from agriculture. Now, that includes the water that we lose from reservoirs and canals trying to get it to mm -hmm. the fields. Mm -hmm. About 10% comes from cities and industry. Most of that 10% is is the lawns. And then about 10% of it is from mineral extraction. So there actually are companies that take water from the lake directly, evaporate it, and then collect the minerals that come from that. So it's really 80-10-10. 80, 10, 10. 80 agriculture, 10% cities, urban areas, and 10% mineral extraction. Does that mean then, I'm going to vastly oversimplify this, that a certain percentage of alfalfa fields or some other kind of irrigated agricultural field cannot be or should not be irrigated or that a certain number of heads of cattle or sheep or whatever cannot be given water. I mean, what, what, what are the, what's the direct translation there as far as you understand? Yeah, for sure. There's a Great Salt Lake strike team that recently released a report just a few weeks after ours, and it has really helpful numbers assessing how much could we get from agricultural optimization. That means using water more efficiently to grow the crops that we're currently growing. How much could we get from flipping the strip and re re uh, reducing lawn area? How much could we get from cloud seeding? Yeah. Let's look at their numbers. They estimate that if we do agricultural optimization, if we switch from flood irrigation to sprinkler irrigation and grow the same crops that we're growing now, that could maybe save us 200,000 acre feet. So that could get us 20% of the way there for the million acre feet that, yeah. that we need to conserve right. to start replenishing Great Salt Lake. That, that's great. 20% is not nothing, but it is not 100%. Yeah. And so they also look at a, a framework that's called deficit irrigation, where you pay farmers to grow less of the same crop or actually to fallow their fields. Mm. That is what we need to be looking at. That's the only way we can get up to the 700,000 to 1.2 million acre feet a year that we need to save. And there's a really interesting global pattern in these terminal lakes. When irrigated agriculture grows to a point that it, it is approximately equal to the area of the lake, so, you know, let's look at Great Salt Lake and its original size. When it's full, it's around one and a half million acres, very large lake. Currently, in our watershed, we have about one and a half million acres of irrigated crops and lawns. And when you have that area of irrigated plants, they just use a lot of water. And these these terminal lakes always transition into decline. And so we really need to be thinking about currently the lake is only 700,000 acres in size. So we have leveraged the amount of irrigated land that we can have by a factor of two. We have twice as much irrigated surface in the watershed as the lake can likely support. And so we're probably looking at we need to have a 50% decrease in the area of primarily alfalfa that we're growing in the lake's watershed. Ben Abbott, he's a professor of ecology at BYU and lead author on a recent report about what it will take to save the Great Salt Lake. You can find a link to that on our website, radiowest.org. We'll take a break and come back in a moment. You're listening to Radio West. There's a lot happening here at KUER. Get a glimpse behind the scenes with Station Insider. Sent to your inbox every Friday, Station Insider includes KUER news stories from the past week and the latest national headlines. Plus, 
sneak peeks at upcoming station happenings, new projects, and other must-know updates from NPR Utah. Sign up today at KUER.org slash newsletters. This is Radio West. I'm Doug Fabrizio. Today in the program, we're asking, did Utah lawmakers do enough in their legislative session to save the Great Salt Lake? A recent report says without dramatic action, the lake is on track to disappear. So we're talking about what that means exactly. We have with us for the hour the lead researcher of that report, Ben Abbott. He's a professor of ecology at Brigham Young University. So lawmakers committed this session some $200 million to what is described as agricultural optimization. Yeah. The idea of helping farmers and ranchers uh, conserve water. Um, that's, a, that's a lot of money. But it sounds like what you're saying, though, is even if, even if uh, farmers and ranchers managed to be, to better, to be better at conserving water yeah. – Taking on that two hundred million dollars of optimization, you know that plan that plays out, that's still not going to get you there. That that's right. It's a really important step in the right direction, and so I, I commend and thank the legislature for that investment. Right, we need that long term for sure, and it is it's extremely expensive to transition the way that you're growing a crop. Yeah. It, it requires a lot of new infrastructure. So I think it really makes sense to support that. But there are two issues. One of them is just not enough. It's not going to get us there. The second one is if we are supporting farmers to optimize their agriculture, to reduce consumption, and we don't transfer the conserved water and make sure that it gets to Great Salt Lake, we can actually end up in a worse position than we started. So this is a, a good transition to what happened at the legislature this year. There, there was a bill, Representative Doug Owens sponsored a bill that would yeah. have redirected conserved water to yeah. the Great Salt Lake. What happened to that? I um, it, I just, I get I can't help but say, I am I'm so discouraged about what happened this legislative session. Um, well, let's and, start yeah. with a grade. Yeah. You're, you're a professor. You're used to giving your share of grades. How, what's the grade you give the the Utah legislature for work on, on trying to save the Great Salt Lake? You know, they get an A for effort, an <laughs> A for how they described and communicated and messaged the work they were going to do. But it's like they didn't turn it in. You know, if if they if they did work, it never made it, and so I, I can't even assign a grade, right? Like it's an automatic <laughs> fail because we didn't see the changes that we needed, and you know who knows? There's there there still is time, even this year, in a special session or um, through executive action, that things could turn around. But in in here at BYU, we can give a grade of an I, an incomplete. <laughs> That says, okay, you know what? You didn't meet the requirements, but over the next few months, if you turn in the following assignments, you'll get there. Because we, we, I'm almost speechless, honestly. Like here we are facing this existential threat and we didn't even show up. Here's what lawmakers, and because we've reached out, what lawmakers and the governor said they did. So let's talk about that and compare it to what you believe they could or should have done. I mean from the speaker's office, Speaker Brad Wilson talked about how they took action to increase water capacity, to expand conservation efforts, to prepare for future water needs, to enhance outreach efforts. They invested nearly $500 million in water resources. Same kind of litany um, that we've heard from, from the governor's office as well. What you're saying is – it's it, it's not enough, and 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 another sort of point that you've made was that they didn't even bring to bear or draft the right bills in the first place. Not only did they not right. pass meaningful legislation, they didn't even start the session with the things that really yeah. are going to make a difference. Am, am I getting that right? You are, yeah, and I mean. 
Doug, you just made me reconsider the grade that I gave them on <laughs> what they announced. Because, because let's say that they, I mean, let's say that every positive bill passed that like, like, um, Doug Owens bill, I mm -hmm. thought it was a really good step in the right direction. But if, if all of them had passed, there was another bill that was going to take money from these two zombie projects, the Lake Powell pipeline, the Bear River development, and designate that for water conservation. Mm -hmm. It could have raised, you know, $300 million over a few years of uh, money that we've been stockpiling for projects that would make the Great Salt Lake worse. But if everything had passed that was proposed, then we still wouldn't have even made a dent in what we need to do. Right, the basic pieces that the, the, we didn't bring the right bills um, to be considered. We didn't address this issue of setting a minimum flow level of the lake that's legally binding, that forces us when the lake gets to a critical level to implement conservation measures. In fact, we went the opposite direction, where we now say a water shortage and a water emergency can't be declared because of drought. And during a water shortage, Great Salt Lake doesn't even show up on the priority list of what water can be used for. So th again, I, I'm, um, I, I, there was wonderful movement before the session started. And Governor Cox, in fact, is the one that moved me the most when he said in an interview, not on my watch, we will not allow Great Salt Lake to die you're going to see unprecedented measures, releases of water from reservoirs, and we're going to be paying farmers not to grow their crops this, this year and the next few years to make sure that we get an emergency infusion of water to the lake. And that's absolutely still may be in the, the governor's plans, but so far we haven't seen that. One of the things you've mentioned um, and the report mentions is the importance of acknowledging that the Great Salt Lake needs a right. It needs water rights and they need to be senior yeah. water rights. Now, it's something we've referred to before. I, I hope we've explained it well enough. But why is that important to give the lake a water right? You know, so the, the way that we manage water is through this doctrine of prior appropriations. Yeah. If you're first in time, you're first in right. And that, that framework has been criticized, I think rightfully so, in some ways, but it could actually solve our issue here because what was the original use? What was the original water right in our watershed? Well, it was water flowing to Great Salt Lake. Hmm. What was the water doing, right? Yeah. Who existed here before hmm. um, European settlers hmm. arrived? Hmm. The lake had made that claim thousands of years before we arrived. It was the original claim on water. It was the original beneficial use of water. And according to the, the rule of prior appropriations, it absolutely should be recognized as the first thing that happens, right? The, this 2.5 million acre feet or whatever number uh, we decide on from future hydrological studies, that gets to Great Salt Lake first. And then we can use and redistribute and share the remaining water the sustainably available water as, as we see fit, right? Following whatever water framework we need. But until we establish a legally binding right for Great Salt Lake, I think most of what we're doing is window dressing. Because whenever there is a shortage, right? The lake level is going to be declining during periods of drought. It's never going to rise to the top. If you have to choose between seizing water from farmers Versus, uh, who have a, a, a legally recognized right to it versus allowing water to flow to Great Salt Lake. I mean, Great Salt Lake isn't going to come and knock on your door and put mm. political pressure on you, but the, but the agricultural community will. The, the water conservancy districts are going to fight tooth and nail to keep water rights within the cities. And it, we're, we're, we've actually seen some of that fighting during and after the legislative session. That The um, water conservancy districts lobbied hard against Doug Owen's um, bill. And they said, oh, yeah, it's, it's good to have a conservation target, but we would never want to take the radical measure of designating that for Great Salt Lake, right? Implying once the water gets there, it's salty and no longer can be used for drinking and, and agriculture. Those are the beneficial uses that we recognize that are codified. We've got to, to acknowledge 
that the Great Salt Lake plays an important role in our community. I mean, again, our, our survival depends on it. We have not come to grips with how bad this could be if we don't prioritize Great Salt Lake. There was an effort, a resolution proposed to establish a lake level. That didn't go anywhere. You've yeah. proposed, and you mentioned this a moment ago, a legally binding level where you you set a minimum elevation and minimum flow level for the for the lake. Say yeah. a little bit about that because the, the idea here is that if it goes below a certain level, the idea is that all of the other water rights are – you just suspend them until you get above right. that level. It's, it's, walk us through that. Yeah, so – in current state code, there's language similar to what we need about a maximum lake level, hmm. right? So there are these famous bangerter pumps that yeah. were built uh, yeah. during the flooding in the 1980s. We've yeah. acknowledged when the lake level gets too high, it's going to cause a lot of damage. And so we need to have an automatic mechanism. We can't depend on the 100 plus legislators to come and pass a new law. Let's just build it into policy. When the water level gets to that elevation, I think it's 4205, then the pumps turn on. We need a similar automatic mechanism when the lake level gets down to 4198. I actually think it needs to be higher than that, probably hmm. 4200 at the least. When it gets to there, automatic conservation measures are implemented. Now, this doesn't mean that you're going to completely cut off people's water rights, but we do this in an adaptive way year to year because every year in Utah, there's a different amount of water that's available. And so the amount of water associated with the water share actually swells or shrinks depending on the water in that year. And so we can leave the water rights, the water shares as they are and still distribute it in the normal way. But we have to acknowledge, hey, this year the pie is smaller and we're going to share the water that we have. We're going to distribute it through the, the water rights. So we need an automatic mechanism. And it's really helpful to associate it with a lake level because that is much easier to measure you know, than comprehensive monitoring of all of the water inflows to Great Salt Lake. And it's less sensitive to people trying to justify not conserving water, right? The lake level is what it is. Anybody can measure that. So I, I think that we absolutely need that bumper. We've got one on the upper end. We need one now on the lower end. There's a section in, the, in your report that talks about the things that not to do. Here, here are the things that we should do. Here are the things not to do. Among them, you say in, in the report not to do is to count on cloud seeding to solve the water shortage. Um, yeah. You also mention that we, um, we don't need to build more infrastructure. Um, our current situation, as the report says, isn't caused by inadequate you know, surface water storage. So that's, that's not going to help. Another yeah. thing you mentioned not to do is wait for rain. Um, and that brings us to the snowpack. That brings us to yeah. what are we supposed to say and do for the lake in the context of a remarkable snowpack year? And you're – so let me just ask you the basic question. Do you think lawmakers – and maybe even the public, for that matter, have sort of taken their eye off the ball because, as as one senator mentioned, M Mother Nature has really helped us out. So what do we do with the fact that <laughs> there's a lot of snow? Um, there's a lot yeah. of snowpack. And so so how does that fit? And then I have some particular questions about that. Yeah. I was really encouraged when the snow started to fall right, kind of end of last year, researchers were very clear in their messaging, like, hey, this is wonderful. This really could give us a little bit more wiggle room. It does not take us out of drought, and it certainly doesn't solve the Great Salt Lake problem, right? We're tens of millions of acre feet in deficit where we need to be. So I was really encouraged at that point that we had a, a nuanced and complete understanding of the system. But as the snow continued to fall, I definitely saw a change in people's attitudes. 
um, a sense of like, wow, we've got too much water. Um, there, uh, what are we going to do about about flooding? And of course, we sh we should be looking ahead to be thinking about flooding. But even if we had dramatic floods, they they are not going to refill Great Salt Lake. It maybe buys us an extra year um, to implement changes. But this going back to our budget analogy and my bank account, <laughs> if my if I am spending more than I'm bringing in, and then I get some wind windfall profit. I sell off uh, one of my bicycles. Uh, as my family knows, I've got a problem. I've got too many <laughs> road and mountain bikes. So I sell one of my bikes. It brings in a couple thousand dollars. If I were to then conclude, I don't need to make any changes. You know, I, great. I sold off my bike. My account would continue running into the red. And so, yes, we got a good year. This actually increases the urgency of implementing emergency conservation measures. Because we may not have another year like this for another 10, 20, or 30 years. And so this is, this is kind of a once-in-a-generation opportunity to make sure that that water isn't stored in our reservoirs and diverted for agriculture and, and lawns. Instead, we need to let it flow to Great Salt Lake. Then it could provide us some more security and allow these longer-term changes to really start making a difference. And, you know, I've been... I've been so negative about this year's legislative session. Last year's legislative session was, was quite good. Hmm. And there were important improvements that were made, but they, they have a time lag. You know, it's going to take five, 10 or 15 years for the, the products of those legal changes to really bear fruit. And so we need to get the snowpack to Great Salt Lake. We've been trying to really kind of pin down the question of whether or not the you know the this the water year the snowpack had an effect on actual pieces of legislation senator scott tandel he's a he's a farmer a lawmaker in box elder county um he had said something that got some people's attention and uh, let me just mention something that he said he said we had a plan in place an emergency plan that could have gotten enough water to save the ecology of especially the south arm of the Great Salt Lake. Mm -hmm. But Mother Nature really helped us out. We didn't have to pull that lever for emergency use. Um, and there was some question of whether or not the, a provision was stripped out of Representative Owen's lawn watering bill because of the snowpack. And also, um, again, we're still trying to sort of pin, pin, pin all of this down, but whether or not the, the so-called emergency actions that may have been put off could have included, for example, raising the height of, of the causeway berm that, that bisects the yeah. lake, of, of funding for cloud seeding, uh, shepherding conserved water to Great Salt Lake. Mm -hmm. uh, m most of what we're hearing, again, from the governor's office and from the speaker's office is we didn't there wasn't an emergency plan that we set aside because of all of this water. Um, yeah. So it's hard to say, but it does seem that the snowpack had some effect on the way lawmakers were thinking. Absolutely. I mean, indisputably, my, my jaw dropped when I read that post by Senator Sandel. Um, if the emergency plan was in place, first of all, let's look at it. Right. Let's please share that, even if you didn't implement it this year. Second of all, it just shows a staggering level of short sightedness. If there were tools, if there were things we could have done to increase water flow to Great Salt Lake, and we didn't do it because of one year of, of weather variability. I mean, we, that, I, I, my, my hope and faith that we're going to solve this problem really mm. shrinks when we're confronted with that kind of thinking. I, it's it's so hard though because many of our lawmakers actually lived through this pluvial. A yeah. pl it's a, a word that means the you know a period mm. of high rain mm. and snow that happened in the seventies and eighties. And so we were the Great Salt Lake was 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 similarly almost empty, and they saw a weather event put off the need for major changes. And filled up the lake. Now, now since then, the, the lake has been in steady decline, but they're at, it's very easy to start to think, hey, these doomers are really exaggerating and we really just need to wait. Uh, we, we don't have that much influence on lake level. It's, it's all about natural variability. 
But that pluvial, as far as we can tell, was likely a one in a thousand year event. <laughs> this one high water year is, is quite likely to be followed, right? We're going into an El Nino year where globally we will see unprecedented high temperatures. And so we need to have the wisdom to look ahead and do everything we can now. Because if we wait until things are bad, it will be too late. I mean, things are already bad, but if we wait until there's no controversy and everyone agrees, it'll be way too late. Ben Abbott, he's a professor of ecology at BYU. We'll put a link to the report he helped research and write on our website, radiowest.org. We'll take another break. Come back in a moment. You're listening to Radio West. KUER has a new way for you to communicate with us. We're calling it Tell KUER. Tell KUER is a feature in our mobile app that allows you to send voice messages to the station. Let us know how we're doing, why you listen, or what you'd like to hear more of. Got an idea for a local news story? It's a great place to drop us a line about that, too. Send us a voice message with Tell KUER and find it in the menu of KUER's mobile app. This is Radio West. I'm Doug Fabrizio. Back now to our conversation with the Brigham Young University ecologist Ben Abbott. He's the lead author in a report that said, without a dramatic increase in water flow to the Great Salt Lake this year and next, it could disappear as we know it in five years. We're talking about what Utah leaders are doing or not doing to alter the grim future of the lake. So lawmakers didn't do enough from your perspective. Let's talk about who who else might be able to, and I, I want to refer to the, the LDS Church. This year's symposium of the Wallace Stegner Center at the University of Utah is focused on the future of the Great Salt Lake, and among the presenters and speakers will be uh, a representative, at least one representative from the church. What do you know about uh, we may be hearing from church? church leaders, if, if, if anything, and, and if we don't know what to expect, what are you hoping for? Yeah, you, you know, the, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is a really important stakeholder in this story. And not only do they hold water rights directly, I think much more importantly, they are leaders and they are trusted and credible in the agricultural community, which is where most of these changes need to take place. So, I, I really hope that we do hear, whether at the symposium or through an official church announcement, a detailed plan about how the church is helping to heal the divides, because we have plenty of water. We live in a semi-arid region that has much more water than Las Vegas or Johannesburg mm. or the Middle East, these areas that really are don't have enough water. What we lack is is trust. And again, the genius of the early Spanish and then later on the early Mormon settlers of this region was that they coordinated and shared. They made short-term sacrifices, including personal sacrifices, to ensure the long-term livability and viability of the settlement. And that's the kind of thinking we need right now. And I, I really do believe that the church has an important role to play there. And I try to always emphasize there's the institutional church and the administration, but the church operation is very, very distributed. And so you have all these different congregations that are run somewhat independently. And then each of us is, uh, for those of your listeners who are members of the church, we also have our agency and our responsibility. And so let's, n let's absolutely not wait until we receive a commandment <laughs> from the church to make these changes. Let's be proactive. And in fact, as we are successful, that model might be seen and copied and spread around the church, not only, not only in Utah, but this, this is an unsolved ecological issue globally that has been described as the, the greatest ecological catastrophe that we've faced so far, the, the loss of, of salt lakes globally. So let's let's be a part of that solution. I want to come back to the idea of trust because it's mentioned in the report. 
as, as the report puts it, perhaps the biggest deficit we have in facing this crisis is trust. So right now, uh, farmers and, and others can, can return water to the lake and not lose their rights. But the report says there's a lack of trust and cooperation yeah. for them to do that. Say more about this idea of, of trust and how do you fix that problem? The, um, the biggest threat, I believe, that we're facing is that this crisis is coming to um, a culmination at a time of record low social trust. You know, pe- people don't feel like they can trust one another if they're of a different political party. They feel like um, they don't know where to go for reliable information. I learned this acronym the other day, the mainstream media or the MSM, right? <laughs> Um, is, is something you can't go to. And collective collective action issues like water conservation are difficult to solve in the best of times. And when everyone is suspicious of each other, when they're worried that the city next door isn't going to salt, isn't going to conserve, or if they're worried that a farmer downstream is going to divert the water that they save, that's a poison pill hmm. for progress. You know, I mean, the, and that that is why I act, I think that there is um, the the much vaunted Utah way, you know, where we transcend. We no longer call each other names and demonize one another, even if we're the the two gov- gubernatorial candidates a couple of years ago. Can we can we put that into action? Can we start to say, look, um, yes, alfalfa is the problem, but also yes. We want to make sure that no family is bankrupted as we solve this problem. We, we absolutely have the funding that the legislature also implemented a multi-hundred million dollar uh, tax cut, right? Yeah. We have the funds available, but people don't respond as, as rational economic actors. <laughs> there are things more important to us than money, and that's, that's a good thing. So it's not enough simply to say, we're going to pay you to not grow crops. Uh, you know, the, the net profit of alfalfa per acre per cutting is around $150. That's, that's not very much. You know, we very easily could bring enough funding together to start paying farmers to not grow food. But if they're feeling that their identity is threatened by that move, they they won't do it. That's more important than a small payout. The only way we're going to solve this is if we can pull together. And that is a big X factor. You know, I, every day I, I think, I think about this. Um, how can we be uncompromising with the facts, you know, and be very clear, look, we need a million acre feet more water per year. Look, if we, if we don't solve Great Salt Lake, our civilization could go the way of the USSR around the Aral Sea where they diverted the water, 95% of the lake area was lost, and the settlements around the Aral Sea completely collapsed and disappeared. They're only remnants, and many of those are suffering severe chronic disease from the toxic dust that they're exposed to. Right? That, that is a, we have to be uncompromising in that warning. But then how can we do it in a way that doesn't alienate the people that can solve this problem? And, and I don't have an answer for that. Um, but but I do but I do have hope um, because of the number of people who are thinking about this. Well, that gets me to my last question, um, and it it really goes to the, the the finding in the in the report that without dramatic action, the lake is on track to disappear. And it made me think. It's kind of a dopey analogy, I know, but it made me think of a Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens and his the yeah. question that Scrooge asks to the ghost of Christmas yet to come. It's that scary final, you know, ghost of the of the future, and he asks, "Are these the shadows of the things that will be, or mm-hmm. are they the shadows of the things that may be only?" It's a pretty hopeful question. He's hoping that he can change yeah. all of this. You said you're hopeful. It sounds like you think they're the shadows of the things that may be only. Is that is that right? That is right. And I, let's psychoanalyze Scrooge just for a minute. He asked that question 
from a place of recognizing there was a problem. You know, he was willing to uh, really interrogate the way that he was living his life. And he realized it wasn't going in a direction that he wanted to. Have we reached that point as, as a people here? where we have real intent. That's the, that's a term from, from LDS doctrine. If you have real intent, it means that when you receive an answer from God or when there is a divine intervention and we have this amazing snowpack, you actually act on it, you know, rather than saying, okay, good. The problem is done. You get to work and do everything you can to use it to its fullest measure. I think that we are getting there. But I, I, I can tell by the legislative session and by the continued fighting of some cities and conservancy districts to consume more water, we're not there yet. I have a, a friend from the legislature who was formerly in the legislature who's done a lot of work with Great Salt Lake. And, and he told me one time, remember, politicians love votes more than they love money. And... Uh, I think that that's a helpful thing to, for, for all of us to, to let sink in. Our leaders mainly follow. And so if we, as the citizens of Utah, keep our, our, our eyes on the prize and we say, this is my number one priority, you know, that we reduce the amount of consumptive water that we have so that Great Salt Lake can thrive, so that our civilization, as we know it, can continue here. I really believe that they'll respond. And in fact, they could respond very quickly. But this this requires a change in all of us. Um, it's really uncomfortable for most people to reach out to a legislator, to make a phone call, or even to send an email, um, even though we'd love to berate them and demean them on social media. <laughs> that's That's easy. But we need every person in Utah to begin developing relationships expressing not only their criticisms, but their gratitude and their positive vision for the future about what Great Salt Lake could be, about how our community could continue to strengthen and heal some of these divides. If we do that, the power and the likelihood of solving this problem are very, very high in my opinion. Ben Abbott, thanks very much. Thank you, Doug. Ben Abbott, He's a professor of ecology at BYU and the lead author of a recent report on emergency measures to save the Great Salt Lake. We'll put a link to it on our website, RadioWest.org. Radio West is a production of KUER. You can subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. We're on Twitter, at Radio West. Our producers are Benjamin Bombard and Tim Slover. Kerry Watson is our executive producer. I'm Doug Fabrizio. ¶¶